Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is the Transmitter Radio Hour from XMTR.FM, a space dedicated to sonic storytelling, original sounds, new voices, and archived treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts, and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio, and I've been scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. This hour is dedicated to a series of audio postcards produced to accompany Sea Change, a series of art commissions as part of At The Docks 2023, a new summer season of arts, culture and events at the Royal Docks in East London. Sea Change brings artists together with leading academics at University College London, inspired by research into sustainable responses to the climate emergency. Four artworks will be at the Royal Docks between the 11th and 29th of May. Each of these audio postcards gives some context and insight into these artists' commissions, as well as some historical navigation of the Royal Docks. Postcard 1. Dana Olarescu, Power In. I live in the Royal Dock, which is um, quite a good community. I can my meet wife, and contact and communicate with schools, different types of people. So, my concern is that as more developed schools are coming up, when you're living near a barrier, what do you do? Space would be less I love seeing the plane. Definitely, we need more trees in terms of community sense. Living in a big city like London is amazing to find in Royal Wharf. My name is Dana Olarescu. I'm a socially engaged artist, and I normally work around issues of both environmental and social justice. And I attempt to build dialogue between those two sectors. And I suppose in my practice, I work a lot in groups, predominantly people who are not born in the UK. And that's also because I came to the UK 13 years ago and experiencing this country as an immigrant has shaped my practice, has shaped the way I live my life. And I think it's important that we have equal access to services, to power and to the knowledge of how the country functions. I'm Julia Tomei. I'm an associate professor at UCL's Institute for Sustainable Resources. And my research focuses on energy and resources in low middle income countries. So really thinking about how people are affected by energy use or a lack of energy and how we can create policies that don't do harm to people, but do good wherever possible. 
Most of my research has been in particularly Latin America and increasingly in sub-Saharan Africa. So it is a real opportunity and a privilege to be able to also work in, in the city where I grew up. I'm a Londoner. Working with Julia has been incredible because Julia is such an incredible academic, just a wealth of knowledge and also someone with skills of bringing those into a room in a way in which it makes sense. She doesn't focus on the technical side, she focuses on the social aspect of energy and, you know, what does land grabbing mean? What are both the low-tech and the high-tech possibilities that we can employ and also what do we actually learn from other countries? So most of my research looks at energy use, energy access in low-middle-income countries and the way in which communities are affected by changes in energy systems. And what's interesting is just how much of that is replicated here in the UK. We decided to work with an incredible group of people who attend the Royal Wharf Community Dock. They are all ESOL learners, so they're learning English as an additional language. The idea was that Julia and I were going to talk about energy with the lens of the cost of living crisis and the so-called energy crisis, as I like to call it, and how this impacts people's lives. I went into a couple of sessions, I met different people. I think we were expecting maybe five people and then 13 people signed up and then we met up. So we had three workshops and each workshop really looked at the impact of the energy crisis, what type of energy access people used to have in their own home countries compared to the energy access that they have now in the UK, what shifted, what are the advantages, what are the challenges, and then I guess as a group we sort of imagined how the system could work better. We also really anchored it down into the values and the types of worlds we would like to inhabit that we might not have access to at the moment. Yeah, we do. I love them. I remember them uh, I love this city, but there is increasing inequality. And one of the things that I've been so struck by with this group is just how tied to their community they are. There's a community centre that really ties them together and is so creative in the things that they're doing as well. And you can see that there's that enthusiasm for it. And I only wish there was more of that kind of initiative and support elsewhere in London. So I think we desperately need it. Normally, you don't even have time to think who is living next to you. However, in, in your Royal Wharf, everybody knows who's living next to each other and everybody has this beautiful sense of community, of sharing. I particularly loved just how closely knit the community is and how, irrespective of their backgrounds, their financial circumstances, everyone values community as the most important assets they have. And I suppose this is exactly what we strive for. But it was actually really humbling and really wonderful to hear that that's also what people want. I can meet the library people here. I have a chance to cuddle her children, her kids. So I think it is amazing for me. And also I learn a lot of the uh, culture here. many people from all over the place. I really love that about the area that I live in. And what I don't like about the area is uh, there are a lot many developments coming up and that's a matter of concern because we don't have shops, we just have one GP and that's horrible. 
despite having this very strong sense of community and this centre that kind of unites them, it is a bit of a desert. Everybody talked about how difficult it was to get food. I mean, to need to jump in a car or jump in a DLR or whatever it is in order to be able to get a thing of broccoli or some bacon, and that's bonkers. Right now, we, when we go to the supermarket, we have sometimes dry, mm. sometimes to take the MDR or, or the DLR. Supermarket is just nearby. The bakers were not like the, the Sinsbury locals, so not sufficient choices for us. With that is quite big one, then everybody's travel less. With that is a cargo system, just like go to the supermarket. We go together. Nice, that's amazing. So you mean like car sharing? Car sharing, no? yes. You kind of, yeah, you, yes. you want to go somewhere and you ask other people who else is going and then you yeah. all get in the car and you go right. together, no? Yes, and for the children go to the school. We might not necessarily link that to energy in the first instance when you think community, but I think maybe that's also how I manage to kind of problem solve as I'm hearing these diverse perspectives, that it, it's all about sharing resources, it's all about being more generous, it's about thinking differently, it's about playing with the other people's children. There's an, also an idea of uh, community fridge stuff. You know, sometimes you have leftovers and you're like, oh, will I be eating it tomorrow? No, I won't eat it tomorrow. So there's always a confusion and you end up throwing it in the bin. Mm. So you like put a label, keep it in our community fridge and like whoever wants it can just it's, it will be open for like uh, this hour come and just uh, take Grab that food something. yeah oh, that's yeah, interesting. yeah. Okay. and that that way you're not wasting your food this sort of idea of joy and positivity in paying for things together is incredibly important because we live in a society where everything has been so atomized and we've also been brainwashed to think that it's so much better to be independent. And people are demanding collectivity, they're demanding community, and they genuinely want to democratize access to everything they have. Wi-Fi is being used in the building oh, by yes. everyone, but we all have our own Wi-Fi. So why can we not share the Wi-Fi? Oh, and, you, you know, it's a wastage of money and time and, and everything. Why don't we do that with energy systems? Surely, collectively, maybe we have a stronger voice, a stronger bargaining power. If there's anything about a crisis, it's an opportunity to rethink, right? It's an opportunity to rethink what we value, how we live, the kinds of relationships we have and what we'd like to see. What's been so interesting, I think, about the conversations we've been having with the group is what we're looking for in our energy systems and it's so intimately tied to what we're looking for in our communities. It's about connections. It's, I mean, it's about being local. It's about sharing. It's about supporting. And what was interesting is, is kind of how little role government played in that, that people really were drawing on those community resources. And um, everything I see is, you know, we have been individualised and, and taught to be separate, to live separate lives. And actually what this community has shown me is how important that and how possible that sharing is. Collecting the rainwater, harvesting rainwater, uh, because we are going to have more hotter days now with the climate crisis. So, you know, if we can save water as a community, yeah. and then you can utilize that water, cleaning cars, watering the plants. In Africa, yeah, we use uh, rainy water. Anytime yeah. it's rain, we would put uh, something, we call it drum. There's something they create, it's like pipe hole. Yeah. So they put it, anytime it's rain, just put it. 
So the water we use it for cooking, mm. for bathing, for anything because some communities they don't have water. And there's so my favorite book is on the desk right now. It's called Low Tech Design Radical Indigenism, which shows incredible ways of doing things with very few materials. Some of the members of the group will say, you know, we would really like to be able to have access to influence policy, but how on earth are we going to do this through an installation? And this is something that I will also ask. You know, I think I've come to a point where I think art is really just a tool, but really what happens around it when people come together and when they become motivated and when they see all the similarities and all the fights they want to fight, I think that's really what we're trying to do. On the bridge, the people could see from the park, but people could also see from the VLR, so from Pontoon Dock. People might be looking at an installation of wind socks, which will display a message. But I think really what this is about is the possibility of creating long-term changes through getting people together. To think critically, to think maybe differently as well. And it's so important for us to come together and almost in a childlike way, allow that part of our brain that hasn't been allowed to do this since we were five, to actually imagine better systems. What does reimagining the energy sector look like? It might not look like anything, but I think we can try. I think we're allowed to try. And I think maybe that is the strength of bringing art into this project. If you think of something that you'd like to share, just get in touch. Obviously, you all have my details. Postcard 2, Rax Media Collective, The Waves Are Rising. We are from Rax Media Collective. I'm Monica and I'm here with my colleague Jibesh. And we have been working together since we were film students. And so that goes a really long time. Our practice is thinking on and engaging with questions of time, of how one inhabits a place together and how does one become aware of the world you make every day when you make it? Because you are always making the world. I'm Jibesh, the second member. The third member is in Delhi now. We are Delhi-based for a long time. Uh, and one of the things that we have tried to do is think the world from the location of Delhi, but more and more trying to understand the way it refracts the various trajectories and intersections the world produces. So I would say it's like the hydra-headed practice that works in all forms. So it really is driven by what we feel together is pulling us onward. We came here for the first time when we were invited by Invisible Dust. And there is something to be said for new eyes in that sense, because one knows kind of the, the material and the circulatory history of how it connected to the rest of the world, how that rest of the world changed this part of the world, which is, of course, its history. But walking here and seeing the site and seeing how it's being transformed, the new buildings, that was all new for me. Docklands, London Dockyard, Liverpool, these are something that if you are growing up in places where the empire was, something that you grew up with. And we also know that in the 90s, we studied Liverpool a bit that all these places, they became the industrial past of the world, but left behind a kind of a non-thinking hold to the world. We kind of understand that it shifted a form of life. It shifted a way of thinking and doing things, and it completely reorganized the global supply chain. What has been really interesting about the process has been the engagement with more than one kind of voice for trying to understand and grasp 
the past, of course, but also the future of what this place is. Things that interest from like how wind moves to how waves move to how ships move, how they've disappeared from my imagination, but actually are so much more crowding of the seas than they used to be. Some of these things one might know, one might read about. But I think speaking with people who have an active ongoing interest and research in that, of course, gives you deeper insight. It is incredible in the UK how we do have these rather large blind spots on areas of history. This was put to me when I was in primary school when I learned about the British Empire as if it were a massive shopping trip, going from country to country, sailing around, collecting various items, and without the extra detail of colonising and conquest. My name is Lila Sumpton. I'm a freelance poet. Poetry versus Colonialism is an educational and creative organisation to explore colonial history. I once was a rigger and I worked like hell. Rolling up, rolling down. Now I'm working for the OCL and go rolling down the river. Rolling up, rolling down. We'll get drunk until we The UK was a very significant place for building ships and also obviously enabling international trade through its large ports and infrastructures and docks and it still is but those ports have moved outside of the centres of cities so that kind of network has evolved it's grown in scale because the volumes of goods we move are much greater it's much more interconnected intermodally so we move goods on ships in boxes that are then almost instantaneously moved onto trucks and trains and that's created huge efficiencies and economies of scale but also means that the vessels get a lot larger than they used to be and therefore unable to navigate up to places like this further up rivers. I'm Tristan Smith, I'm a researcher at University College London and a director of something called UMass which is a collective to look at decarbonising global shipping. I now focus on the, the ways in which we can change a sector which is highly dependent on fossil fuels today to having zero emissions over the next couple of decades. But we also look at the policy and how this affects various different countries around the world that are all part of the shipping system and have been disrupted by the way it's evolved historically but could become increasingly disrupted both through the impacts of climate change but also how policy to kind of mitigate climate change will, will affect their trade in the future. My name is Maddie Phillips. Being involved with maritime heritage particularly, it's quite an interesting place to be because I work on the Cutty Sark in Greenwich and working with vessels like that and working with that kind of history, like you're very aware that our reliance on oil and our reliance on engines is very recent and before that everything that was transported around the world went by boat everything and so all of that would have been done with sail power or by rowing so kind of watching people tear their hair out saying like but, but how could it possibly work how could you transport it and it's like well well that's what people did for millennia Talking to many of the researchers, we understood something very fundamental that the ocean actually is very turbulent. It rises very high and there's a lot of containers that sink and there is a story there. And that story is long, you know, like long in the mythic way. It was there always, but their stories for the last 200 years has been very important. We have used in our work for the longest time the question of submersion as a kind of metaphor. When you're underwater, then there is neither distance nor horizon all the parameters change. 
And the fact that when you change your state of body, you change your state of mind, and you have to look at all your assumptions again. The sea has been flattened out. It has become a landscape that we might know about, but we don't live with, at least in cities. People might live by an old port, but they don't have a relationship in that sense. So how one looks at water, both you know, in your imagination and in your everyday life, and then, of course, the work that we want to present is about the fact that things are never what they seem. That would, of course, hold for everything, but especially for the waterfront here. Probably most of the things in this room arrived here on a ship. It's just that we haven't acknowledged that or we don't recognize it in the way that we might have once done because it's out of sight and it's automated and it's this sea blindness concept which we use quite a lot in our work because the political saliency of shipping and the low profile it has because we don't acknowledge it really is detrimental to efforts to decarbonize the sector. How does one process disembodiment in our contemporary life and so this blindness that occurs, kotoma, towards certain realities and so sea blindness clearly is one of the big ones. I really don't think even I, in spite of having thought that I engaged with it, had a true understanding until I saw how truly vast these ships are. So to understand a small space, you bring in so many other variables to make sense of what is the past and what is the future from it emerging. So in that sense, it can be seen as a conceptual laboratory to rethink not only the word local, but rethink what is this local here? We come from the north of India, where you know the empire has always been land-driven, right? So the Mughals came from the north. My great-grandfather used to run a camel caravan. That is the kind of history that you sort of understand. Ships, in a way, were where the outsiders came from. This is obviously not the case if you were to live in South India by the water. But I'm just saying, if you're living in North India, where you're by the sea, the ships are the place where the British come, the Portuguese come, the French come. They come from there. Narratively speaking, you hear the ship and empire are very closely connected. The understanding of the world being one and the fact that we live in this world where everything is connected is all because of the ship. But also it's deeply connected to empire. We only succeed in addressing the threat of climate change when we induce a lot more equality into the way that we think about the world and recognize the vulnerabilities of different communities. And there are 50 odd countries that have dire existential threats facing them as we exceed 1.5 degrees, which will probably happen in the next 15 years. So the recognition of that by communities, including in the UK, but also understanding that there are communities within the UK that are vulnerable in the maritime facing areas, such as the Docklands, which will be destroyed by sea level rise and recognising the vulnerabilities that we all have to the ocean. And some of that recognition of vulnerability and equality needs to start with the discussion about empire. So there's a reason why we have the economic wealth to manage adaptation and resilience. And there's a reason why the other side of the world doesn't have that. And that was because of exploitation. So we can either continue to assume that or we can recognise this as an opportunity for rebalancing. I think it's just important to look at the ingredients of extractive and exploitative practice, be that in terms of colonial history or in how present day industries and businesses work. Once you get a sense for what it is that makes a practice exploitative or extractive, then your eyes are open to parallels within history, 
and to what needs to be done to try and turn the tide. How do we bring this, this injunction alive in a way that allows people to have a degree of meditative encounter with something that is so distant, the ocean rising in, in both in time and in spatially in the imagination, and also something that is very proximate because your world has to change because of that. So we're not existentially threatened as a country, but we are severely threatened as a set of local communities with relatively low heights above the sea. And there are adaptation projects that you can put in, in Thames Barriers, a historical example of that, which is right on the doorstep here. But those barriers are only effective against a certain height and then building much higher structures just ceases to make sense and you need to move populations and infrastructure to higher ground. And we have that luxury. Many countries don't. That's what our hope is for the work, is to be able to bridge that connection between water and land, but also about the knowing of the sea and then what one can feel from that knowing of the sea. Postcard 3. Melanie Manshaw, Flotilla. At the very, very first meeting, I had an image in my head of what I wanted to do. Even though that was completely unfounded, there was no research yet whatsoever, I kind of had this vision of women on the waters of the Royal Docks at night. And like we often do, artists, creative people, you sort of have an, a hunch and you follow it and then later on discover that there was a good reason why you had it. So my name is Manny Morshaw. I am a visual artist and filmmaker based in Hackney, where I've been living pretty much for most of my adult life. I'm originally from Germany, but moved here about 30 years ago. The reason I got involved with this particular project and made the work that I've made called Flotilla is probably located in the fact that I make a lot of work through processes of participation, location research, and collaborative practices that involve quite often groups of people and examine how we all as social beings tend to find our place in life and in the kind of societies that we live in through our relationships with others. I think as long as everybody is like guided by the one boat in front in terms of pacing, then it should be a near boat person. Then it should, I think it should work. Yeah, that's how, that's my logic. In the first I've known the Royal Dogs for a very, very long time. I remember being at the Royal College I studied photography in the early 90s and driving out to Silvertown with someone to take photographs. And it was just the most unreal, moon-like experience of going to the outer reaches of the world. <laughs> at least that's what it felt like to me at the time. And discover a real sense of kind of otherworldly beauty. It's still very much London. I mean, City Airport is there, but at the same time, yeah, as you travel out on the DLR, you do really feel like you're traveling into a very different environment that has its very own kind of socio-geographic atmosphere. 
even when we think about it as an area of absence or that needed to be rebuilt or regenerated, remembering how important those kind of really strong community links were to this space is so important. And at the heart of it is the docks. I'm Anna Maguire and I'm a lecturer in public history at UCL and I'm a historian of empire, war and migration, mostly focused on the 20th century and Britain and I'm also a historian of London so that's how I came to be involved in this project. So thinking about the docks and the space of the docks and the kind of mobilities of that population was really interesting to me, particularly in its relationship to ideas of radicalism and resistance. For me, location research is really important. So actually, when anything, I spent quite a bit of time in the docks and then started meeting women who live in and around the docks. And that was kind of a process of four months of like being there a fair amount and kind of letting the idea percolate. I used to go sailing there when I was a kid. My dad would take me to the little water sports center on Victoria Dock and we'd go and sail Picos. It's quite a difficult place to sail, to be honest, because it's so surrounded by tall buildings. It's flat calm and then suddenly the wind will just come funneling down a gap between buildings. You just end up capsized, so you've got to like scramble your boat back upright again. I've always been involved and interested in boats and the water. I've, I've sailed from quite a young age. That's always been a big passion for me and a big part of my life. My name is Maddie Phillips and I was invited to take part in the project because of another project that I organised in the Royal Docks where we took a Thames sailing barge into the docks for a couple of days so that people could come and visit it and I now work on the Cutty Sark in Greenwich. I didn't know already that there's such an incredible and shocking imbalance of women working on the water until the 1990s, women were not allowed to work on moving vessels. If you think about the history of women's liberation and the suffragettes and struggles for equality, 1990 is, you know, that's so recent. Today, 1.2% of the seafaring population is female. 1.2%, that's nothing. I had no idea how late it was before women were allowed to work on ships in this kind of formal capacity. And it's been really interesting speaking to some of the participants about their relationship with the water and sort of seeing it as kind of quite a male gendered space. There has been like a lot of prejudice against women and, you know, yeah, like women being considered unlucky on ships. There's a lot of truth in that. And it, I think that has been like quite a prevalent belief among some people for a long time, but there's also a surprising number of women who kind of have been present, either on ships or like at least playing a really crucial role in a lot of maritime industries, like more than most people care to admit, more than some people who really like the romantic boy's own kind of image of sailing as, you know, like the, the manliest manly thing that you could do would care to admit. When we were looking for participants, we made a call out for local women who felt that they were in some way connected to the area and inspired by the idea, but also were kind of aspirational people in themselves. I went to this briefing session and I just said, I've got to go somewhere, but I'd like to put my name down. 
And I'm so happy that Melanie and her team, they were so persistent. So they kept on emailing me saying, you know, we'd really like for you to get involved. My name is Councillor Thelma O'Doy. I'm a teacher, so I'm a teacher of mathematics. I've lived in Custom House pretty much all my life. Last year, I was recently elected to become a councillor. So I'm a councillor in the area. The group of women that became involved both as old users, but also predominantly as the women that we were sort of our inspirational figureheads at the front of the boat. For a start, they were very cross-generational, which is fantastic, from being really young in their early 20s to being in their probably 60s, at least. Melanie came to visit the figurehead collection that we have in the dry dock under the Cutty Sark. That was another aspect of the project that really kind of intrigued me. You know, like the idea that the only time really like women were allowed on board a ship was the carved figurehead at the front. Quite a lot of figureheads, you know, they were just kind of like stock. So a shipyard would kind of make up a bunch of bodies, kind of all identical, and then just like leave the heads as a blank. So when you came in saying what figurehead you wanted, you could tell them what face you wanted them to carve on it depending on whose likeness you want it to be and then you know they just like paint the dress the right color even then they like they quite often weren't unique really thinking about the docks as a kind of a gateway is really interesting but also becoming a real heart for industrial action and social movements and organizing and that's particularly had a, like a long history with women in the docks it was wonderful when we had the first meeting we had about 15, 18 people around the table. It was all women. <laughs> it's one sort of amazing moment where you kind of have a conversation and you think, wow, there's so much power in this room and energy. I think it's just one, one person per boat. I saw one, them. One said, no, we're not alone. Well, there's other oh, there's, on there's, the there's, there's the boat workers. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. <laughs> we're not driving the boat. <laughs> you had the rowers, the people who actually do this on a weekly basis. So they were all there. And then there were other women just like myself from the community who are not maybe into water sports but we were all invited anyway and we were asked to wear what we'd usually wear to represent our profession. Hopefully what people will experience and take away is slightly different from what I'm going to say because if they just take away what I have in mind they would find that disappointing. I love it when the work is bigger and wider and more complex. Yeah, I hope people will see the variety of of women and, you know, like all of the different things that they do, different personalities and characters, that we're really not just a monolith, but that's something that's worth celebrating. And yeah, I, I hope it does encourage people to kind of think more about the history of the Royal Docks as well and the involvement of women in the area too because I think there's a lot that you could dig into. I just know that it represents the diversity of Newham because all these different women of all different ages, all different races, cultural backgrounds, religions, we were all there on these boats. And historically, I don't know if you came here hundreds of years ago, I don't know if you'd see that same picture. What I think my work 
more generally has a sustained interest in and forms an inquiry into is how we form more sustainable futures through equitable life situations that include all people equally. Postcard 4. Simon Faithful. Biotopes. I'm Simon Faithful. I'm an artist and I'm also a professor at the Slade, UCL. And recent work of mine has been thinking about our sort of precarious position on the planet and how entangled we are. People and nature are not separate. They're very much part of the same system. My name's Izzy Bishop. I'm a lecturer in ecology at UCL's People and Nature Lab at UCL East. So I'm part of the People and Nature Lab, which is headed up by my colleague Kate Jones. And our research is all about the interactions between ecology and society. My sort of thinking in previous projects has been heading in this direction, but then had a, yeah, totally fascinating conversation with people in Nature Lab. And it was like a very sort of free-flowing discussion, getting excited about things, but really about how much we're interdependent, but also how much even in the most human-only anthropocentric place, the city, even within that, so-called nature is so adaptable that there's many species that have found small nooks and crannies to find perches within this. Space for nature can be quite small. It can be as simple as leaving a gap in your brickwork for a hedgehog to go through. That doesn't necessarily add a feeling of being in a green space, but it's a really, really simple thing that you can build in. Riffing about things came more to insects and the obvious insect to go to, where there's a whole, you know, massive tradition, was bees. That was how that sort of drifted into beekeeping. Then the next bit was the conversation with Dale and learning much more about bees. I'm Dale Gibson. My wife and I run Bermondsey Street Bees, which is a sustainable beekeeping practice. For a long time, we were based in the middle of London, just in Bermondsey Street. And in recent uh, times, just a year ago, we moved out to coastal Essex. We work on the basis of high knowledge and low intervention is our key guiding principles in beekeeping. Our primary focus is the welfare of the bees. Bees are really important pollinators. That's the key thing. And bees are not the only pollinators. Don't forget there's also wasps and flies and all these other things. All of these pollinators obviously are part of the reproductive system of plants. Plants we use as crops, so their pollinators are crucial for our food security. But also even those plants that we don't use as crops are the basis of every food chain. In terms of a, an insect to study or to communicate the connection we have with the natural world, the bee is a pretty strong candidate for opening up people's imaginations to the reality 
that this connection that Simon is striving to communicate is very vivid and very actively programmed into the modern world and yet the bees have been doing this for 88 million years already and haven't changed a thing that they do in that period of time. So they're very successful, they're very established and they're very connected. There were many things that I learned talking to Dale. So originally I was thinking about bats and birds and eels, wild creatures that inhabit the cities. And then I was trying to think of another species that could be quite quickly installed and be visible. And so the fungi came then later. Domestic bees, as I saw them, were a bit of a compromise to begin with. I guess I thought of them more like sheep, like they've been sort of domesticated. But that was a complete revelation to discover that actually it's only a sort of mutual interest pact, that the bees only stay for as long as they're happy with the conditions that they're living in. So if they're not, they'll go. The fact that it really is a collaboration between species is super interesting. We don't move our hives around. They live in the places they are. Simons will have a temporary four-week holiday in Docklands where we have two apiary sites because we have a relationship with the Royal Docks, which means that in these open, rewilded areas, we can have bees that are very successful uh, and not in any way uh, overstocked relative to the ability of the local habitat to support them and the other pollinators. That's why it won't be anything unusual to ask Simon's bees to uh, do what they do and to live in harmony with the community of human beings, of uh, microbes in their own gut and with the world at large around them in the Thames Barrier Park. When you think about the history of the docks, in my head I imagine this really sort of bustling, lively place with a lot of activity. And the kind of activity that's hidden there that you don't see is the ecological activity. I suppose another thing that kind of aligns Simon's work with ours is this idea of making that invisible stuff visible. We do it through data and through trying to measure it and he does it through visualising it artistically. But I think that's a, just a really lovely alignment there. The importance of making this hidden world visible to people. The big local resource is, uh, unsurprisingly, the River Thames. Thinking of marginal areas like riverbanks and they're very prolifically fertile areas for bee fodder. So if you go to where the River Lee comes into the Thames, down at the Limo Peninsula, you've got a huge nature reserve on that oxbow, which is isolated, has rows of acacia trees, lots of cherry plum forage, where you get the uh, tidal movement up and down. These banks of the rivers and the Thames, when it's not rigorously embanked, are very fertile areas for small, insignificant plants which give nectar, pollen and variety to the bees' diet. Okay, um, yeah, I guess maybe the river is that way, isn't it? Okay. My name's yeah. Dilawa. I work for Thames 21 as the Thames Connections Project Coordinator. Now, Thames 21 is an environmental charity and what we do essentially is 
restore, improve and maintain rivers and waterways all across London and the outskirts, so mainly the Thames and all its tributaries. So we have projects varying from things such as natural flood management, wildlife restoration and just getting rid of rubbish. So we organise and facilitate cleanups with our volunteers and we have a large number of volunteers, thousands in fact, on a yearly basis, for citizen science programmes. One of the big challenges we've got in rivers is that we've straightened them and narrowed them and we do that to stop flooding because we want to build right up to the edge of a river. But actually, when a river floods, it's connecting to its floodplain and it's creating pools and marshy boggy bits and different habitats. Things that you can do that will never be done at the Royal Docks are things like re-meandering rivers. And there's a lot of projects doing that at the moment. In places like the Royal Docks, you can do smaller scale things where you put woody berms within the river channel. You're trying to create a kind of heterogeneity of habitats and heterogeneity of flows. And that can be done on a very small scale or a very, very big scale. There's also the whole um, well-being aspect to it. So, you know, we know through recent research and especially through the pandemic, how being around nature really has positive impacts on people's well-being, whether it's mental or physical. And that's something that people get from it. I've personally experienced this myself, you know, when I've been running an event or even just participating and how great it makes me feel. You know, you could have a terrible night, for instance, but you can go and spend the morning by the river doing something like this. It just makes you feel energised and uplifted. So people were quite keen on getting involved in cleanups. You know, they wanted to take stewardship of the local river and um, they also increased their sense of ownership and belonging to. So you don't have that sense of detachment where you have the riverside developments and sometimes people feel as though the river's not theirs and that's one of the barriers that we also want to break. There's this phrase, hive mind, which is shorthand for loads of things, but the actual hive itself, having this kind of consciousness, I find really interesting. To position the bees, as it were, physically in Simon's head, we hope that, that is a very visual, emotional and imaginative way of communicating the connection that human beings have with the natural world via this very sociable, very happy and busy insect that mankind has lived with since the very first human walked on two legs and took a bite of a honeycomb. I guess the heads poetically make an analogy to how massively interconnected we are with all the other things on this planet. Postcard 5. Untold Histories. A walk along the Royal Docks. Ever seen the wild goose? Sailing on the ocean Just like them pretty girls when they get the notion really 
interesting place, an area that's always been changing. I think that's what's so fascinating about the area around the docks is thinking about responding to new demands of commerce and capital and the people that are required to supply that. So that leads to kind of big, interesting stories about, you know, who are the players in this from the East India Company in the past to say some of the big corporations who own this space today, thinking about the regeneration of the Docklands, of Canary Wharf in the 80s and kind of some of the narratives that get built around that. But at the same time, you also have all the people who are involved in this. So thinking back to the Victorian period, where you've got the factories that are being established here, the labourers that are being brought in to supply factories, trade stores, who are working on the ships themselves, and then the kind of ecosystem that develops in response to that. London's a port city. The British Empire and its expansion via particularly the East India Company has meant that there have been sailors of many nationalities and heritage living in London. I think at one point, the East India Company British merchant ship, 60% of their sailors were Indian, 20% were from Malaya, and 10% were from China. One of the first Bengalis that came to the UK were Bengali seamen, known as Lashkars, who worked on those British East India Company ships, later on British merchant ships that were bringing goods from Bengal to the UK. I think probably from 1930s onwards, there were a small number of Bengali seamen settlements in and around the docks of East London. My name is Ansar Ahmedullah. I'm part of the Shadinata Trust, a small Bengali community heritage group based in the East End of London. We have been documenting the sort of, lives and stories of the UK British Bengali community. I'm Anna Maguire and I'm a lecturer in public history at UCL. I'm a historian of empire, war and migration, mostly focused on the 20th century and Britain. And I'm also a historian of London. My name is Lila Sumpton. I'm a freelance poet and also a member of the London Sea Shanty Collective. So that has led me to explore the world of both poetry, sea shanties and the history of colonialism. And I mean, the history of empire is a history of a vast and almost unfathomable exploitation. And you can really see that in the fact that the Alaskars were paid around a sixth of what European sailors were being paid. The seamen who were working on the ship, they came on a one-way contract. So once the ship docked here in the UK, they had to wait for a returning ship back to India and get a job. Until then, they were more or less left to their own devices. Some of them decided not to go back, known as jumping ships. And from what we know, some of them did marry local white women, and some went back. Obviously, we don't have any memoirs or diary of the seamen themselves. They're mostly written by, you know, British officers who were their superiors. From what we know, most Bengali seamen worked down below in the engine rooms, fueling coal or later on oiling the machines. Sailors would arrive with terrible injuries from beatings. There were reports of torture on ships. The reports of sailors throwing themselves into the Thames to escape the torture that was happening on some of these ships. 
I have read stories of seamen just waiting, hanging around. Sometime it got so worse that uh, they ended up begging. There are stories of them dying in the streets of London during the uh, cold weather. There was a big problem in terms of who was responsible for the Lascars. There were some sort of philanthropic organisations who tried to organise for homes to be set up, like boarding houses. These were often with appalling conditions. There were huge numbers of sailors who were dying, who were ill. They weren't allowed into the hospitals. The East India Company was approached to do something about this and because the ships weren't taking any responsibility. It sounded like various parts of London didn't want these sailors near them, so there was this attitude of we don't want these foreigners anywhere near us. And because they were housed in such appalling conditions, it was assumed that this is how they lived and how they wanted to live, not that they had been forced into these really terrible conditions. We know we've got homes for sailors that kind of pop up around the ports and become these sort of hubs for sociability for these men who've travelled halfway across the world and are trying to find places where they can forge community and, and really build those relationships and sustain themselves. The uh, British Empire would be bringing in goods from around the world and the docks would have been a thriving place, many languages spoken. So you had a huge number of ships going from England, returning with woven fabrics from India. That was a huge accelerator for the East India Company. But when cotton was grown in the colder climates of Southern America and that enslaved African labor meant that cotton was being produced at a fraction of the cost, it meant that they could take that cotton and work with it in a mechanised format. And that was when you had the cotton mills being created, particularly in the northern towns of the UK. And that entirely switched the fabric market around and completely decimated the fabric trade in India to the point where woven fabrics from the UK were being bought into India. Jamdani weavers. If I sing to you of Jamdani, of running water and evening dew, of muslin so fine it is breath on skin, caressing each curve in light. When Jamdani purred their fingers, they tasted hunger for sunlit water, for gowns that made their bearers float, for meadow mist that clung, and knew that ten East India men simply would not do. All else is coarse when it sings on limb. So it fell to that honourable crew of purveyors to sequester 48,000 Bengali weavers for their use alone. For the soirees demanded more, and the winter season at Bath had debutantes waiting to launch, whose dowries were jacket soldiers wed, and build the fleet needed for Jamdani waltzes and quadrilles at the London summer balls. And if you have sugar in your tea, and gold on your fingers, and muslin on your skin, you, my dear, can go. Poetry versus Colonialism was co-founded by myself and two of my fellow Sea Shanty Collective members, Victor Riker and Dr. Penwood. 
Without unravelling the history of colonialism, you can't understand present-day inequality at all. This has always been a space for migration. Right back hundreds of years, docks and ports are often the places where people are mixing and mingling in a way that the rest of the area hasn't experienced yet. And certainly that's true of, of this part of London. So thinking about the sailors who are, are coming over, who are working on ships and, and then meeting up with women who they fall in love with and end up settling in this area. So there's some real kind of long entwined stories about this older community around this part of London community is here, it's happening, it just maybe isn't seen in, in the places that people expect it to be. It's not immediately visible in this area, but I think you create other ways of working around that. What does it mean to not just imagine this area, but to live in this area and to think about some of those resources that might have been lost? I live near the docks, so the rich history of the place and the culture that we share, there are a lot, many people from all over the place. It's quite calm, the view is lovely, we have the Thames Barrier Park. I live in the World Dock, it's an apartment, high-rise apartment, which is quite a good community. I live on uh, dock side, when ship is going, you know, all the ship, ferry, everything. When the bridge wants to divide, maybe, Big ship is coming. When you are walking, you have to stand, you have to wait. In the Royal Wharf, everybody knows who's living next to each other and everybody has this beautiful sense of community, of sharing. And that's because maybe they're coming from different backgrounds and because they've brought with them those beautiful cultural values. So much uh, that uh, I have to learn about this area. And, but overall, it's uh, really nice when I see my boss uh, every morning uh, yelling at the birds and uh, it's crazy about it. So I think I've chosen the right place to choose there. There's a lot of community coming around now and we will definitely need another school nearby. We need even another community centre because it's not enough. We have summer sport water activities. It will be from June end, I think. So I generally cycle in the docks. So that's again a great part, yeah. After I came here, I learned a lot of the culture here, also the different cultures from different people. And at the heart of it is the docks, right, is this body of water and thinking about what that still represents today as a kind of a portal in and out of the city. A space of leisure especially, a moment of calm for a lot of people is coming down and looking at this body of water. When I come to this part of London I'm always so reminded of the many purposes the docks have served over this really long period of time, that that water is still in many ways the same, but it's just meant quite different things to different people. This series of audio postcards was produced by me, Lucia Scazzocchio from Social Broadcasts, featuring songs performed by the London Sea Shanty Collective. This is part of Sea Change, commissioned by the Royal Docks team in collaboration with University College London and curated by Invisible Dust. You can see all four artworks for free at the Royal Docks London between the 11th and 29th of May. And for more information, visit royaldocks.london. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in July and do visit 
xmtr.fm. In the meantime, happy listening.